0: Konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history. Okay, so actually this week we are doing something a little different. While we are burying our noses in research for our next episode, we are going to do a shorter episode talking about five hidden gems from Japan that you should look to import. Of course, if you're interested in more games, check out our YouTube, which we are pretty new to, but our information is hopefully at least useful. To keep this episode brief, I'm going to be using a lot of board game jargon to describe certain things. So, I apologize to those listening to the show who may not be familiar with some of the terms, but I hope this episode will still be an enjoyable and informative one. So, let's get down to business. Buds. Uh, oh, sorry. Let's get down to business and tell you about five hidden gem games, in no particular order, that come from the land of the rising sun. The first game to talk about is a stock market SEC collection game called Tsukimono, designed in 2012 by Masao Suganuma, and the version I have is published by a Japan brand. It is 8,110 on Board Game Geek. In Tsukimono, your goal is to get 50 coins called Ryo before anyone else. You do this by picking one of the decks that signify different parts of the country. Everyone will have a deck in front of them that they can look through and buy as little or as many things as they want to buy from that deck. But here's the catch. This game is a somewhat real-time game. At the same time, everyone will look through the deck they've chosen for that round as fast as they can because the first person who is finished will get to sell to the market first, and then the next person who was finished, and so on. The reason that's important is that when someone sells something to the market, that good lowers in value to the point that it can actually become worthless. For example, let's say my wife buys three cups that were originally able to be sold to the market for six ryo. She will get to sell those three cups for six ryo each for eighteen. She would move the market price for cups down three spots, which actually takes the cup off the board, meaning nobody else will get to sell any cups they bought this round. So there's this constant pressure of do I try to find exactly what I want and risk going later in the turn order or do I pull out early, sell less, but get to go earlier in the turn order? This game is fun for a few reasons, but I really think the aesthetic is where I want to start. This game just screams traditional Japanese culture from the box to the card art. Artists Noboru Hota and Hideaki Takamura absolutely nailed it. I also like that people can win this game in different ways. Can you remember which pile certain things were in this game? Great! Use that to your advantage. Do you want to go slow and steady and try to guess what everyone else is doing so you can take your time and go a different direction? That could work, just like going super fast could work as well. It makes this game accessible for people of all skill levels in a way that I don't think all real-time games allow. Memory helps, but isn't necessary. Speed helps, but isn't necessary. Tsukimono is a great game to add to the collection. But be careful when Googling the game, as sukimono in this context is an outdated definition not used anymore. But rather, what is used is the other definition, which is Nymphomaniac, which would be a completely different game than collecting teapots. The next game to talk about is Square on Sale, a game from 2005 by Taiju Sawada with art by Akinori Nishiyama and published by a few different publishers, but the box version we have is by late Tokobushi Game Club. This is ranked 9,821 on BGG, which I think is simply because people haven't been able to get their hands on it, due to it not getting picked up by a foreign company. This is an auction game, but calling it just an auction game doesn't do it justice. If you've played Othello, known in some places as Reversi, you've got a good understanding of the fundamental way this game works with real estate. The things you are bidding on are spaces on the board to capture, meaning you can put your piece on top. At the end of the game, you get points for each piece on a stack in the space in which you are the topmost piece. So, for example, let's say we are playing blue, red, and yellow players. Yellow has two pieces, blue has one, and red is the top piece with one. Even though yellow has the most pieces, it doesn't matter. Red is on top, so red gets four points because there are four pieces on that spot. But wait, when you win a spot in an auction, you don't just get that spot. Like Othello, you also claim any spot between the spot you just won and a spot you already own, meaning that it can totally change what the board looks like. In Othello, this means that the corner spaces are strong because they are easier to defend, with the center squares being harder to defend. Square on sale is the same way. Let me explain a bit. This game is a closed economy. There is never going to be any more money entering the system as the game progresses, so using the money you have at the greatest efficiency is key. The board is a 5x5 five five board, which is important for the purposes of money. Every turn, you must remove one chip from each of your center squares and add it back to your supply. This is both good and bad because, on the one hand, it returns your money to you, so you have more to bid with. However, it makes your square more vulnerable to a takeover. The only way you can get back chips from edge squares is to devote an entire turn, for example, no bidding, to take a chip from each of your edge squares. And once you put a bid on a corner square, you cannot take those chips back until someone outbids you. If it sounds complicated, it's because explaining it all in words is a bit difficult. But with a board, it takes about five minutes to explain the rules at most. What you're more looking at is a puzzle, a brain-burning game of efficiency, planning, and adaptability. Which brings us to the first caveat I have to give for this game. This game is mean. It is brutal. It is a game in which a four-player game can have a score of 40 to 32 to 3 to 1. It is a game where the person most familiar with the game will probably win. And it's a game that you need to devote at least five games to fully judge. I hate having to say that about games, especially in the board game culture we are in now, in which... For better or worse, the idea is mostly to play a game once or twice and then move on to something else. If it doesn't capture your attention or provide you with tons of fun right away, it gets sold. This game being from 2005, I think it necessitates a different approach. It wants you to start playing a group of friends and get better at it as a group, developing strategies and counter strategies over a series of plays. And I think it deserves it. I don't think this game is for everyone, but if it sounds like it's up your alley, you like games like The Estates, Othello, or even Food Chain Magnet with its often runaway winners and no sense of rubber banding, this game is awesome. But that does bring a second caveat, this game is hard to find at times. Right now, at the time of recording, there are four copies on Amazon Japan, but then they'll go out of stock for a while. This game is seemingly handcrafted, and the board is beautiful in an abstract game kind of way. The game board is cloth and the squares are wooden. It is a game that is hard to find because the creators seemingly care so much about it that they make it themselves. If you like a tough, brain-burning puzzle, Square On Sale is a must for your collection. I would be remiss to do a list of Japanese hidden gems without including trick takers as Japan is one if not the most innovative place for trick taking games and so I'm going to cheat a bit but hey it's my list and I can do what I want. I'm going to include two games here in this spot one cooperative trick taker and one competitive one. Let's start with the cooperative one. Ranked 7,473 on BoardGameGeek, we have Familiar's Trouble, or Trick and Trouble, depending on the version. This is designed by Fukutaro, and depending on the version has different artists with Trick and Trouble, including the art of Clemens Franz. In this game, you are working together to complete objectives that are worth differing amounts of points. The harder objectives are worth more, and the easier objectives are worth less. By the end of the game, you try to complete as many objectives as possible, and then consult the table to see how you did. It's a game of trying to improve your score rather than something like The Crew where you're going through a story, and I'm being nice calling it a story. The objectives in this game are about thresholds, like trying to complete a trick in which the sum of greens are more than 6 and the sum of reds are more than 8. There are always five objective cards visible on the table, so you can complete more than one objective at a time. For example, if one objective is to have a sum of red more than five, and another wants a sum of red more than eight, if you have a sum of nine, you fulfill both objectives simultaneously. Awesome. There are a few wild cards to help out, and some cards have multiple colors they can be played with, so there is some flexibility. Besides the objectives, there are three other differences between this and the crew, and I'm sorry to continue comparing them, but The two are going for the same target audience. One is in card size. If you get the trick and trouble version, which is definitely the most likely because that one is cheap and easy to find, whereas the Japanese version is a unicorn, the cards are bigger than normal, so finding sleeves might be more difficult or expensive. Second, this game only plays three players. That's it. Not two, not four, three. And honestly, it's kind of refreshing to just have a game say, hey, this is how many players this works best at. Don't try it at those other player counts because it doesn't work how I want it to work. And finally, communication. There is no communication allowed in this game. There's no putting a chip on the card if it's your highest green or only red. This makes the game really challenging. And something called short suiting is really important here. But overall, if you're looking for a game in which you can get two other people to work together with, especially if your group is motivated by achieving high scores and beating previous scores, it's hard to find a better trick taker than this one. But if you're not cooperative, which is totally fine, I myself prefer competitive ones, then let me give you a trick taker that is a hidden gem in the competitive field. And let me tell you, it was so hard to find one that the Trick-Taking Guild on BGG hasn't already covered in depth. Between James Nathan, Taylor's Trick-Taking Table, and the Trick-Taking Guild, they've seemingly gone through almost all of the major and minor ones. So hopefully I found one that hasn't been covered to death by Trick-Taking Lovers. I find that the Trick-Taking games that get pulled off the shelf the most these days are trick-takers for people not super into Trick-Taking. Often, this means that I want trick takers that have other motivations to them, especially ones that people understand intuitively. Which leads me to my next recommendation, a game that is not even ranked on BGG and has only a whopping 13 people marking it as owned. The game is called Dato, and it is a combination trick-taking racing game. The story given in the rulebook is that you are the hare that lost to the tortoise in the famed fairy tale. You need to practice so that you can learn when the best time to take a nap is so that you don't lose to the tortoise again. So in this game, you have a nap card that allows you to sit out of a trick in your hand. You go around the racetrack with the winner being the person who is the furthest when everyone is out of cards. Along the way, you have to use your nap card, and you can only use it once. But why would you want to sit out of a trick? Well, unlike other trick takers, the leader of the next trick isn't the person who won the previous trick. It is the person who is currently in last place, which means that timing and knowing when to win and lose a trick is important. There are a variety of ways to move in the game. The first and most obvious way is to win the trick. This is a must-follow trick-taking game. You get to move the number of spaces of the lowest card of the dominant suit played that round. So for example, let's say everyone is supposed to play blue. So we have a blue seven, a blue three, a red something, and a yellow something. Well, the player who played the blue seven would win the trick and get to move three spots since it was the lowest blue card played. You can also move by yelling Dothal if you realize you are playing the last card of the color when you are the leader. If you do that, you get to move the number of spots of remaining cards in your hand. You can also trump a 9 with a 1, which would move you 9 spaces, and you always get to move 1 space as the leader. This game is super fun. I actually bought it on a whim thanks to its bunny art, something I had none of in my collection, but was pleasantly surprised at the greatness of game I found. Because of its basic trick-taking with no special powers or anything, it automatically gets put in the approachable trick-taking category, which, pairing it with the racing genre, a type of game everyone understands, gives it an immediate appeal to people new to games, or at least new to trick-takers. I have a collection of something like 50 trick-takers, so I am picky about which ones I keep. But this one has a steady place in my collection as a game that makes one of my favorite kinds of games fun for people both familiar and unfamiliar with trick-taking. Speaking of favorite kinds of games, we talked on last week's episode that my wife's personality lends itself to enjoying roll-and-write games. They're her favorite kind of game, which leads me to buying a lot of them, but also being disappointed quite often in ones that aren't special. A common complaint launched at roll-and-writes that we often agree with is that, although solo they can be pleasant, there is little to no interaction while playing them multiplayer, which takes away part of the reason many people play games with others. So what if I told you that there was a roll and write from Japan that was essentially party game adjacent, with an adorable theme, great art, and actually makes people laugh? Let me introduce you to the 5,024th ranked game on BGG, Natsumemo, designed by Kaya Miyano and published by Kosei Games. Natsumemo in Japanese can be translated as summer diary. It's something that Japanese students keep during their summer vacations. It's important to note that in Japan, the school year is April to March, so summer vacation is a couple weeks during the year, and often kids still have schoolwork, club activities, or school trips. This game is for 3-6 to players, which right away is different for a roll-and-write. This is actually a flip-and-write, sorry. Your job in this game is to plan your summer vacation with your friends. Each player receives a special calendar sheet and a hidden sheet. Each round, the active player flips the card of the week and declares the day on which the event will occur. All players choose to join or not join the event all at once, and if they join, write them on their calendars. So maybe I say, oh, I'm going fishing on Tuesday, who wants to come with me? You form special bonds that grow between the characters who participated in the same events, and this scores more points. So you try to fill up your calendar with fun activities and friends. Sounds pleasant enough. But there's also homework you have to give yourself time to finish. You'll be given X amount of pages to finish, and for each page you don't finish, it's negative 10 points, which is quite a lot. So it becomes tantalizing because you want to go have fun with your friends, but you also need to do homework. It becomes hilarious as you were thinking of the same problems you did when you were younger. This game really does make us laugh, and what's more, makes us tell stories while we are playing. Like other seasonal Japanese games, the activities on the cards tell a story of what Japanese kids do for fun, which may or may not remind you of something you did in your culture when you were young. We get fake mad at about spending more time with your other friends instead of us, or choosing homework over our friendship. It brings back so much nostalgia. It has so much theme for any game, let alone a flip and write. The art and graphic design are top-notch, nice work by artists Urio, Tansan, and Shingetsu Ryu. It immediately goes up there towards the top of the list of best in the genre. We cycle through flip and pretty quickly, but this one is staying. Just one caveat before moving on, though. You'll probably need to use the translated files on PGG because the cards are in Japanese. There have been murmurs of localizations in English-speaking countries in the past few years, but those have mostly dissipated. So one more. What should the last one be for today? It was actually quite hard to know it down to five. I'll probably have to do another list for Korean games and Taiwanese games and more Japanese games. I should do the super clever marketing thing and choose Yoda Yoda Penguin so that I can direct you to our YouTube where we cover that in a full review or the fun Funbrick series because we also covered that. Okay, so I kind of just did that. Seriously, we are new and would love some feedback and tips or just ideas of what you want us to cover. I need to take some editing classes, but I think the information is solid. Plus, my wife said she'll start appearing in podcasts and videos once we hit a certain number of subscribers, so I want that to happen. With that, let's get to our last game of the week. It's the highest-ranked game of the week, sitting at the very high, Mount Olympus-like level of 3,015. This is designed by Jun Sasaki and, in my opinion, one of the best Oink games out there. Better than Deep Sea Adventure, but gets almost no love to the point that Oink stopped producing it here in Japan and Yellow took over abroad. The game is called Kobayakawa, and it is a fantastic example of a micro-game that is more than the sum of its parts. I can tell you all of the rules in about 30 seconds. At the start, each player is given four tokens. Eight tokens are placed in the middle of the table. Each player is dealt one card face-down, and an additional card is dealt face-up next to the deck. This is the card called the Kobayakawa. Each player takes a turn and either draws a card to their hand and discards one of their two cards face-up in front of them, or turns over the top card of the deck to replace the current Kobayakawa card. After all players have taken their turns, each must decide if they want to stay in and fight by betting a token. All players that decided to fight reveal their card. The player that has the lowest value card adds the value of the current Kobayakawa card to their own card. The player with the highest number, their own card, or their own card plus the Kobayakawa card, wins the round and they take all the tokens that players bet, plus a bonus token from the middle. They take the start player token for the next round. On the seventh round, where only two tokens remain in the middle, the stakes in the bonus are doubled to two tokens. After the seventh round, the game ends, and the player with the most tokens wins the game. That's it. That's all the rules. This game ends up being kind of like potato chips. You can't just have one. Games take about 10-15 minutes, and oftentimes people want to play again and again. The simple bluffing and deduction mixed with betting makes this a blah of a game. When you get the oink box, it comes with these lovely metal coins, which are great. But in either edition you are talking very very few components that make you even wonder how this would even be a game the reason i picked this game as our final hidden gem is just because it feels like it is often overlooked by insider deep sea adventures startups and fake artists all of which are great games besides deep sea adventure that one's not good but what this game supplies is the most mind games the most meta of any of these are they drawing a card and discarding a low card because they just got a nice high card? Or maybe they just want to psych me out be- by adding a new Kobayakawa to the mix. Maybe they are bluffing and just want me to think their hand is good so that I fold. It's like a micro-injection of poker with a fraction of the rules, and yet it gives me much the same feeling. The best part is that this game, in its yellow form, is easy to find and cheap, so I think it's definitely worth tracking down and giving it a go. The only slightly negative thing about it is that the box is 3-6, to six, but I really don't recommend it at 3. 4 and 5 are the best in my opinion, and 6 is okay, but at 3 it loses a lot of the luster you get with more players. Well, that's all for today. I know it's a Tuesday release day and it's not our normal thing, but hopefully you still enjoyed it. If you wanted to do more of these in podcast form, reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter. I'll have the links below. And of course, as I've mentioned, take a look at our YouTube page where we post bi-weekly reviews of Asian games we think deserve some more attention. Until next time, sayonara, matane!